G'day guys, welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm sitting here again to intro the episode with Lionel Burney. G'day mate, how you doing there? Not bad Mitch, not bad, how are you? I'm doing well mate, I've just finished a nice little training block. The sun was shining like you won't believe today. I've got tan lines, I've got glove tan lines and if anyone knows that means it's good sunlight. You're starting to get those horrible lines just above where you wear gloves but on a good note, I'm happy with it because I had the, the legs out, I had the arm warmers off. It was a sensational day today. So summer is just around the corner. It's been a fantastic week of racing. I've really enjoyed watching um, Torino Adriatico and Paris Nice. And while I was sitting back there, I was thinking about the podcast I wanted to do for this week's episode. And I thought someone gave me the suggestion. It was actually the boss of my team. Her name's Mary. She said, Mitch, I need you to do a podcast on just explaining what racing is. And I thought, you know, sometimes you just take it for granted what happens in the peloton. You take it for granted what crosswinds are. You take it for granted how a sprint is. I thought, wow, that's a great idea. Maybe I should break down exactly what we do in races. And I thought, who better to do this episode with than none other than my a good friend from back in the day, Robbie McEwen. I thought... You know, he'd be great to talk to about this. He's in the commentary box. He gets it. He's been at the top of the peloton his whole career, 17 years as a pro. I thought, well, I'll throw it out there. Hey, Robbie, would you like to come on the podcast? Yeah, right to the top of the sport, uh, Mitch. Robbie McEwen, uh, 12 Tour de France stage wins in his career. He won the green jersey in the Tour de France three times, which basically means you're the best sprinter over the three weeks of the Tour won 12 stages of the Giro as well for good measure and a, a race that uh, really intrigues me because it's a, a long one and a flat one Paris Brussels which goes from the capital of France Paris of course to the capital of Belgium Brussels and he won that five times and a uh, couple of Aussie road championship wins as well and as you say uh, he's maintained a kind of connection to the sport he's completely current because He's the co-commentator with Matthew Keenan in the commentary box covering the Tour de France for the World Feed, which I know a lot of um, viewers in Australia would uh, listen to Matt Keenan and Robbie McEwen's commentary on the Tour. So he, he really knows what he's talking about when uh, he's watching the racing and none more so than the sprint finishes, which is really his area of expertise. Well, I'm not going to say anything more because I think you guys have heard enough from us. Let's just sit back and have a listen to Robbie. I hope we can break it down enough for you guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So here we have it, guys. Robbie McEwen talking, I guess, race tactics or racing. Oh, wow. We've just been in the green room and it has been very funny. I'm talking with none other than Robbie McEwen. He has told me officially this is one of his only podcasts he's ever done. What a pleasure to have you on, Robbie. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Mitch. Anything for you, mate. Life in the Peloton. I spent half my life there, so I thought this is the podcast I should say yes to. I've, I've done a couple of little cameos here and there, like, you know, five, ten minute little interviews i guess you could say on on podcasts but uh i, I tend to i don't know why i just have tended <clears throat> pardon see voice going already commentator's curse uh, i just sort of i don't know i've tended to avoid them but but happy to be here with you mate i'm wrapped to have you on because there's so much to talk about and when i was thinking about having you on i've been thinking for a while we had a chat way back in um 
in uh, the, the world's Last in... week. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we were chatting actually at the world in Harrogate. Yeah. And you probably don't remember because I, I barely remember too because I'd had a few cold ales by that point. But we're like, I've got to get on the pod. And we started talking about all these different stories about Chippo, about sprinting. And then I started thinking, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about here. So this is going to be a bit of a curveball. It's not necessarily a Rob McEwen story today, but what I wanted to talk to you oh, today that's about- good because I'm a bit over them. There's a lot. And you can buy your book if you want to get that. Yeah. I've read yeah. that. And there's a million great stories in that too. Some of them are true. How many percentage wise? Oh, hard to say. I don't want to, you know, break anyone's um, <laughs> high expectations. If You know what they say, if you believe it, it's not a lie. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a... <laughs> oh gosh. All right. Well, let's, let's crack into this. Today we are talking race tactics and we're talking a bit of tech. It's something that I realized, someone brought it up to me that life in the peloton, we try and break things down to help people understand what they're watching, what life is like as a pro. And one of those big things is cycling's a pretty funny sport to watch. If you get it, you understand what the hell's going on. If you don't, and you're just, I would say loosely new to the sport, you're really wondering what is going on when we're, you know, in the middle of the race, standing on the side of the road, having a toilet break, and there's other guys in the front of the race going full gas, thinking, Aren't those guys winning? What are those guys doing at the back there? And there's many different things I want to uncover today and explain what goes on. Before we get into that, I want to set up who Robbie is for everyone who doesn't already know them, know who he is, and why I've chosen Robbie to talk to today about that. I want to go back to 2007, stage one of the Tour de France. It's a sprint stage into Canterbury in England. It's a hectic all day, small roads. As everyone knows in Holland, uh, in England, they're the hedge roads. They're the small little roads. It's the first day of the Tour de France. It's the first road stage. So everyone is very, very nervous. There's a crash at 23K to go. 20 or so riders go down. Robbie is one of them. His team drops back for him. But the bunch is just going at full speed. It's 20K to go. You're happy if you're you know, in a good position at that point for the sprint. If you're at the back of the bunch, you might even consider the race over for a sprint. If you're off the back of the bunch in a, in a crash, you're pretty much saying, okay, let's just save it for tomorrow. No. Robbie goes, okay, he keeps his cool. He starts to chase back on. I just want to read this little, this little seg segment that Cycling News wrapped up the stage, and I think it sets up the finish beautifully before we want to talk to Robbie about this. As Tizardo and Segmans were taking Boonen into the final lead out with one kilometer to go, Milram took over their train on the left-hand side of the road as they were delivering Eric Zabel to the front. But in a quick succession of left and right-hand bends, Milram lost their grip and were surprised by an early sprint from Barlow World's Robbie Hunter. The South African launched himself away from the charging pack but couldn't sustain his speed. With Discovery's Thomas Ficus on the wheel, Robbie Hunter faded. And... FDJ Sebastian Chavanel hit out on the right, while Tor Hushoff and Tom Vernon chose the middle of the road to make their kick in the last 200 metres. But nobody expected the appearance of Robbie McEwen, who shot like a rocket past Francesco Ventoso and came from 10th wheel to explode to the stage win ahead of Hushoff and Vernon. McEwen, his leg dripping with blood, won his 12th Tour de France stage with so much speed the rest of the sprinters looked as if they were standing still. Robbie, 
Talk me through what I've just explained there because for me, when I was watching that, I was I was just about to come across overseas. I had so much respect for you already, having got to race with you in the Bay Crits and see that firsthand. The Bay Criteriums in Australia is an event where young aspiring riders can get a chance to ride with the biggest professionals and that was a chance that I got to do and I watched Robbie weave his way through the bunch and just think, well, if Robbie can do it, maybe I'll try and do it. Uh Uh-uh, I could not even think about doing that. Then I got to see how he did that in the Tour de France from this moment. Robbie, can you talk us through that? Because I think that sets up why I'm going to talk to you today about the intricate tactics. Well, from the moment that I crashed with around 23k to go, um, well, you did so sort of kept my cool. I I very far from kept my cool at the moment, like at that time. I sort of jumped around, hopping in circles. I let a few expletives go. Um, But I, I think the real key was that my team was so focused on me that we were okay we were far behind we're over a minute down with still with 16k to go we're over a minute down but and i was i only had one rider at that point um johan van summeren who won paris roubaix in 2011 he was the first one he saw me he waited immediately and i still thought well, it's all over we won myself and just him against the bunch and they were flying at the front but then you know a k later almost the whole team was there waiting for me all the domestics so all the riders who were there, you know, to protect the leads, myself and Cadell in that particular tour, they dropped back and they rode a team's time trial. They got me back on with 5K to go at the back of the bunch, which is, as you sort of said before, if, you, if you're at the back of the bunch, even at 20K to go, it's going to be tough. At 5K to mm. go after a big chase, I thought it was still you know, a lost cause. But I think that the number one thing is I had the, the trust of my team and that was really motivating for me that they came back and did what they didn't at least got me back to the peloton to give me a shot mm. and once i got there i just said to myself look you got nothing to lose you got a perfect yeah. excuse for not getting a result so it it just released the pressure valve of this is road this is the number one road stage first one and the sprinters have got to get on the board and it puts a lot of pressure on if you're expected mm. to win and this is the first chance i felt no pressure because i'd had had a fall big chase back that it's highly improbable that I'll even get in the top 10. So mm-hmm. I just forgot about the result and I stuck to, uh, and it's, I sort of, I, I absolutely hate cliches, but I stuck to the process of just getting to the front. But at the same time, I wasn't thinking my way through it as such. I was just hitting every single gap as if it was gonna be the last gap I'll ever see in my life. Um, and, and I yeah. just, just I got through all of them. I mean, by hook or by crook or just by, you know, just saying the right thing at the right time. I come up behind these couple of Spanish guys from, um, at the time, the Uscatel team that they were used to ride the bright orange and they used yeah. to be involved in every single stack throughout a Grand Tour. It wouldn't matter where it was, when it was. There was always one of those guys in a crash and <laughs> you didn't want to be behind it, but I come up behind two of them and, and I, I always um, made sure I knew everybody's name and, yeah, right. And there was, there was one of my, I, you know, come up to the right behind him and, and I'm like, uh, hey, Miguel. And he thought, oh, this is one of my mates. He wants to get, and he sort of just shifted very slightly left and I just darted through this gap. And, you know, the last I saw her then, last they saw of me, got back to the front. And by the time we got to the sprint, um, 
I, I just I clicked back to my original plan, which was just wait, slide uphill before the finish, left hand bend at 150, and you couldn't see the finish line till then. Mm. And I thought, just don't go too soon on the uphill. Wait, keep the legs as fresh as possible without making a huge effort there, and then start your sprint before the bend, before you can see the finish. Mm. And in the in the end, I mean. It's just, it's how it worked out. I, I came around on the right past Fentoso. I actually bumped him. He sort of came out, wobbled out a bit. I was already coming past him, doing two to his one. Um, bumped him. But then I, I started my sprint from that point as we got towards that bend. And I was from the outside of the bend back to the inside. And the others, like Bornen and Husov, were sort of from the inside to the outside. So as I came across them, they totally missed me. Like, I was accelerating as hard as I could. And I, I got a gap, but they were sort of going towards the outside with their momentum, yeah, yeah. carrying them out of the bend. I was cutting back the other way, so nobody got the wheel. And next thing, I'm four lengths in front, and I was dying a 1,000 deaths on the way to the line, and I thought, there's no way I can be winning this. Yeah. And, you know, then the line went under my wheels, and I sort of sat up and thought, don't forget the salute. You've got to <laughs> celebrate the victory. But even then, it wasn't... When you win in a sprint, it's often such an explosion of excitement uh, almost the holy shit I just won yeah. and I just I, I remembered like yeah you, you, you got to have your arms up for the photo I mean this is what <laughs> but I, a complete look of disbelief on my face and even when I've watched it years later I still look at it and go how how does that even happen just the actual like uh, when you take out the whole chase and everything like that the sprint itself if you'd been sitting in the right wheel and everything had gone to plan the sprint the pure sprint itself was an amazing part because of, like you said, the, the timing of it, the you cutting on the left and the guys going to the right and then you just creating that distance and actually making them look like they're in a, a different class of sprinters. But when you add the, the part in before, that just for me and Chris Horner's interview, I, I just recently watched this sprint just to sort of refresh myself. And Horner is classic anytime when he's on camera and this time he was, he was classic too because he's gone, you know, we came here to win stages. Robbie said, I want to try and win one stage. It's day one, and we've got that in the bank already. So I think that was um, that was just set it up. Exactly what you said, you relieved the pressure. You said, I'm just here to win stages. Whatever happens today, you know, it, it'll, be, it'll be what it'll be. And obviously we saw what happened there. Yeah, well, I already knew after that stage, I knew that I'd actually hurt myself pretty badly. And every day after that, I got injured my knee. And luckily I got it out on the first day and got that win because I got worse every single day until the point I just couldn't pedal the bike anymore and about eight days in I was out of the tour. It's the only one that I didn't finish out of the 12 that I started. Well, that's what I want to talk about now. 12, 12 Tour de France's, 12 stage wins. 2-7 was your last stage win, wasn't it? That, that win exactly? 2007, that was the last stage win, yeah. But you were professional for 17 years and now that's exactly what I want to talk about now. Over those 17 years, let's talk about everything we know about cycling. And I want to start, seeing as we're talking about sprinting, let's start with sprint styles because people out there watch these sprints and they think, I think in more recent times, there's been a lot about the lead out. There's been trains on the left, trains on the right. Back in your day, I remember watching it, there was really only one train, the red train, Chippo's train. Yeah. And I want you to explain a little bit. You're a little bit similar to a rider that everyone is more familiar with now, Caleb Ewan. 
he is using a train, but often he prefers to search for himself. I, I see typically there's two styles in a bunch sprint. There's the lead out guys, a Marcel Kittel, someone who likes the speed very, very high, and they come off that train, continue with the speed and go to the line. There's another style of sprinter, which is you, I think, someone who likes to find their own way. Explain those two styles of sprints for me. Yeah, and it's all sort of physiological, the, the type of sprint that suits you the best. The, the sort of the, the big high power guys like a Marcel Kittel, uh, like Pataki before him, like a Cipollini, they, they like it to be almost like a team's time trial and just pull everything into a single file line using their teammates to wind the pace up at the front with them sitting in the slipstream. And what that essentially does is eliminates almost everybody from being a contender for the sprint. Really, the only person in contention is the one who manages to get in their wheel. So that sprinter on the back of a train, whoever can get on the back of him is a chance. Beyond that, pretty much no one's going to win because if the sprinter, like let's call it, say, Cipollini, they take him to within 200 metres to go. The guy behind him will have a legitimate crack, but he'll have to be on his best day. The guy behind that one, he's got to come from three lengths back at 70 plus kilometres an hour mm -hmm. trying to make up that distance. It's just, it is near on impossible. Something would have to go wrong for the guy at the front to you know, not win, basically. Um, and it, it always, it, it used to be like one, just one train and people say, like, why don't the others do it? Well, they just, mm. they could not match that pace. And so then it becomes down to a, a, a fight to get on the back of the best train. So it's, it's not necessarily always a tactical decision of, oh, we're not gonna make a train, we're just gonna try and go on the back of that train. It's that train is just so strong that it's, it's pointless trying to take them on. And you've just gotta try and get on the back of them at the right time. And that was my tactic with guys like Chippo, like Pataki, like Tom Bournon, is go up and get in that wheel but essentially not be there too soon because then it gives others the time and the chance to come up and challenge you for that wheel. You get blocked, you get sandwiched, you get pushed back. You've got to re-accelerate, make that effort all over again. So I always used to hover a little bit further back, preferably with one teammate, and I would give him the signal now, and he would sprint up the side of the group and drop me off essentially right behind the wheel of that sprinter who's on his train. I'd fight my way in, and if my timing was right, it was at the moment where the next, the next wagon on the sprint train would hit the front and really take the pace up within the last sort of five, 600 meters. There was no chance for anybody to come anymore. It just started going way too quick for anybody to try and ride up the side. So it was all a question of timing and fight hard, fight once and get mm. that wheel and then be on your best day to be able to pass them. Um, you know, that, that's the, the sort of the two different tactics of the sprint. And, you know, you can only do the sprint train one if you've got the resources, if you've got the teammates who you can put in the right order and that they can nail everything, get to their marker. They often get given a marker to get to, you know, rider, rider X, he has to get to 1K to go. Um, rider Y, he has to get to 600 to go. Rider Z, he has to get to 400 to go, and then you've got the last two guys, the pilot and the sprinter, and, and off they go, and preferably get your sprinter to within 200 metres to go. And it sounds, it, it sounds ridiculously simple, but it's so hard to put into practice. 
Um, you know, if you've heard the expression herding cats, it's a bit like that when you're trying to take control of a peloton. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, just interrupting Mitch's conversation with Robbie McEwen to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Now, I've been a customer of HelloFresh for a couple of years or so now, and if you're not familiar with what HelloFresh do, they basically deliver a box of ingredients and recipe cards to your door so that you can make dinner without all of the stress and strain of having to go to the supermarket, think about what it is you want to cook, and ensure you've got all the right ingredients in the right quantities. It takes all of that fuss out of meal preparation. And I'm a real convert, I have to say. Um, before we used HelloFresh, we'd always go through that rigmarole of what are we going to do for dinner on Monday? What about Tuesday? And so on through the week. Uh, none of that anymore. You just choose the recipes that you want delivered on the website and they turn up in a box. And as I say, one of the things that's uh, really good about it is that there's so much less in terms of food waste. Um, basically because everything is pre-portioned so you're not having things that have you bought too much of and it's going off in the back of the fridge that's one bonus for me another is that the variety of meals that you can choose from is extensive and you can go weeks without having the same meal twice if you want and it certainly broadened my uh, repertoire in the kitchen because a couple of years ago I couldn't have imagined that we'd eat quite so many vegetarian and vegan meals but because of HelloFresh's recipes and particularly the fact that they have all of the right herbs and spices to really make a recipe sing um, we've broadened out and extended the, the range of things that we've been cooking and eating so on that score a big thumbs up from me it's also affordable starts at around £3.25 per person per meal so you're saving time and money and if you want to give HelloFresh a try yourself you can get 50% off your first box and 35% off the next three boxes at hellofresh.co.uk with the code CYCLING so that's 50% off the first box and then 35% off the next three. HelloFresh.co.uk with the code CYCLING. Ethan, well, tell me, tell me when you have been in the situation with the lead out, because I know you, you've had them at, at times too. And you knew that was all happening behind you and potentially someone got the draft behind you and you were going to have to hit out once your, once your last man got to his point, he was going to leave you in the front of the race. You weren't going to have a slipstream off another sprinter going for that win. That's a different style of sprint. And what would that ultimate marker be for you in your own mind? Where did your lead out man have to get you to for you to be able to win off a lead out train? And did you like that situation when you did get the perfect lead out? Funny as it sounds, it wasn't the ideal situation for me. I mean, I've done it, I've won races like that as well. But I guess it all depends on who's in your wheel and how hard a rider they had to get there and mm. to, to get into your slipstream and, and ride your train in. But um, I've had it a few times. The ideal for me was that if I had a lead out man who could get me to with 150 metres to go, that is really, that's about um, seven seconds to the line from 150 to go, if that, depending on your speed. So that that's ideal. The less time that people have to come past you when you're doing 70, the better. Um, but it, it sort of wasn't always my thing. I was, 
uh, not so much a, a lead out st train style sprinter as uh, more of a an ambush sprinter. I'd either get onto the wheel of the lead out train that was dominant, or I would use just one or two guys, but mostly I'd, I'd use my second last guy to bring my last guy and myself into position. And then I'd just keep him with me like Kurt Stegmans when we rode together. And the hardest thing about riding with him was holding him back long enough. Yeah. It's just saying, wait, 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 got to 400 meters to go. And you know, there's a whole lead out train doing their best on the front. Um, there's someone in the wheel of that sprinter and someone in that wheel and they're thinking, oh, we're gonna fight this one out. This one's, you know, we're a chance, we're gonna win this one. And I'd just release Stegmans at 400 Stegmans, to go. Yeah. He would just blast past them. And I remember, I remember a stage, I think Burnham was in yellow, it was in Vitre in, Fran in the Tour de France. It was like stage six, I think. And Stegmans came past, I remember it just, it was just ridiculously fast. Whoever was behind me couldn't follow my wheel because I was on Stegmans, he just went that quick. And we came past the train. I remember seeing Daniele Benati look across and the look on his face just was one of like, uh-oh, uh -oh. this one's over. And I, it, was, it was seriously, it was just so much fun. It, it, it seemed like Charles Way. It was the best lead out. It was, there were two just incredible lead outs he did in that tour. Um, but that, that was the ambush one. So wait for the lead out train, you know, doing their thing, but just hover. And the further back you are, the more slipstream you get. And he could just mm. wind up into it. And he was a good sprinter in his own right. I mean, he won the stage in Ghent in the Tour de France in 07. He won the stage on the Champs-Élysées um, a couple of years later. So you know, he was a great sprinter. He turned out to be a very good sprinter in his own right. But leading me out was just, I, I said it back then. It was like he was the TGV. I had a ticket to sit on it and I just had to get off at the right time. You have to have that gem in your pocket though to be able to do that. And he was, he was more definitely that guy. He was just oozing with power. What do you think has happened these days? Because we are seeing those rival teams. Is it just that? the teams have got it together and people are understanding how to do lead outs better now because as we just pointed out and as you pointed out there really was only one team who got that front maybe another one came like i explained in your lead out quick step on the front then milram came and that was it but now we're often seeing one train here one train there there's three or four trains going and the only time i can remember in my career as the train really controlling it was HTC for Cavendish. It was the really pinnacle last train that I remember mm. that overpowered everyone. What do you think's happened these days now that there's able to be rival trains? Well, what I'm seeing is a, a, there's a couple of things I think that um, lead into being more trains, more teams forming a train, more capable teams. They, you don't have an entire team around a sprinter anymore. Like you, you, you rarely see it anywhere. Yeah, that's true. Like with, with Cav in the HTC days, I mean, okay, okay, took one guy for in the hills sort of thing, but he still contributed to the train. So he got to ride the tour, a guy who was a climber like the Velets or someone like that, they got to ride the tour because they could function in the sprint train as well. Mm. You'll, you'll now rarely see a complete team lead out. The closest we see at the moment, I reckon, is de Koenig yeah. for Sam Bennon. Um, you know, guys like Alaphilippe are getting involved and, and, you know, scrawny climbers, they're doing their bit to lead mm. into the sprint. Um, but what we see is a lot of other teams putting some resources into the sprint. They've, they've, you know, they've paid big money to get a good sprinter, so they're surrounding him with a, with a couple of guys. But 
what we see rather than full team trains is we've got these three or maybe four man sprint teams within a team. So you'll mm. have seven guys at a race, but there'll be three that work together in the sprint. And a team for me that stands out like that at the moment is um, Trek Sigafredo. Mm. So you've got Definitely. guys like um, Jasper Sturven with Mads Peterson, sometimes along with Edward Toons, but those three work quite well together for a really small, and it's, it's one of those ambush lead outs. It's a, the way, and I, I think sort of Kunda Court has been a little bit the brains behind how they set themselves up. They used to do that with Marcel Kittel quite a lot back in the day at um, the old, and you were there, Argos Shimano, yeah. or Skill Shimano. Um, they'd, they'd come late, but they'd come hard. They'd only yeah. be with sort of three of them, or four maybe, but they'd just come from the coast, but they were really well organised. So they, they were very good at being together, not getting split apart, not one on one side of the peloton, not one on the other side, and trying to organise themselves. They're always very well organised, and they've, they've hit the front quite a few times what they are missing is a top sprinter. Mm. Like Mads Pedersen is doing really well, but he's just you know, former world champion and in Harrogate on a hard course. He's a classic style guy with a yeah. pretty rapid finish, but he's not a sprinter sprinter. If they had a top sprinter on the back of them, they would be winning so many races because they're, I find them really well organized and, and clever. But that's what you see across the board now. There's a lot more of these three-man lead-out teams, um, you, know, you know, three from UAE and the three from Trek Segafredo, three from DSM and, you know, and Case Bowl had a win the other day. Similar sort of thing, really compact units of a sprint team as opposed to the old school HTC, use all eight. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. I think that's the way cycling is going too. It is a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. We go there, we try and win the, you know, you've seen it a number of times. We try and win the GC and let's get the climbers jersey. You get the sprints jersey as well. And we'll try and wrap up the white jersey as well as the team's prize. You know, there is no actual go for one goal because um, I feel like everyone's like, let's just, we've got a team of rock stars. Let's try and get it all. Hmm. See, speaking of sprints, I want to talk about one thing which might be hard for everyone to understand is the intermediate sprint. Something you were going for quite often, fighting for that green jersey in the Tour de France. And then the final sprint. They're two sprints, but they, they're seen very different. If you watch it on television, it looks like someone's just having a sprint out on a bunch ride, essentially, in comparison to the final sprint that we just spoke about. Trains, the bunch, the speed seems higher. Then you, you go, you're sprinting against the same guys, though. Aren't these sprints just as hard as the final sprint? Because they certainly don't look as hard. They should be exactly the same, no? The, the sprint themselves, they, they can be as hard, but you often see guys you can visibly see them trying to save themselves for that final sprint because let's face it the the big glory is in winning the stage itself outright as mm. a sprinter if you're going for the green let's take the tour de france example if you're going for the green jersey the points are very very important you're probably not going to win or lose the green on one intermediate sprint you just got to be consistent but the mm -hmm. big points are on offer at the finish so it would seem reasonable to say, okay, I'm going to score as many points as possible, although as economically as possible. Mm. It's like, I'm going to try and fill up the petrol tank of my car, but at the cheapest servo. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm willing to drive a kilometre further down the road to do that. It's sort of that sort of thing, uh, you know, just the economy. Um, 
but sometimes you'll go all out in those sprints but why they they are easier and they look easier is they don't the the accelerations don't start from as far out the jostling for position because simply as not as many people are as interested yeah and some sprinters will say to their lead out men i uh, just sit back take it easy you save yourself i'll just follow the wheels mm. and try and just jag a few points and they're not mm. so none of them seem super intent mm. on winning the sprint having said that you look back to last year's tour de france it's something sam bennett did incredibly well he was winning a lot of those sprints and he was expending the least amount of energy out of anybody because he had uh as may, many people may know him michael morkov as he says his own name mikhail murku mm. but he is he is the best lead out man in the peloton at the moment and he should be on the sort of contract that a top sprinter is on because anyone who's gone to de Kooning quick step and ridden with michael uh, mikhail murku as their lead out man has just become the best sprinter of the season each year because of his delivery and that is his delivery is unbelievable it's it's and he's also and this is something we could go down a rabbit hole here with sprinting but i want to move on in a second but the thing that i being a an old lead out man myself i wasn't actually that snappy i wasn't that fast and a lot of people just assume oh we've got two awesome sprinters let's just put them together it's not about having the most powerful guy in front of you it's a guy who can sustain that speed when the speed's already at that high speed just keeping it going and maybe increasing it a bit, being smooth and just having someone like, you know, Morkov, I'll call him that because that's what I call him. <laughs> having Morkov holds the speed, knows where to be and keeps that calmness. I think yep. he's... Smooth, um, predictable, powerful and, and stay calm and just make the right decisions. And he makes those time and time again. He is, he is class and I really like watching. So anyone who's listening to this, next time you're watching a, a race where Sam Bennett is riding together with uh, Mikhail Murku, or Morkov, if you're just reading his name, it looks like that. He's Danish. They have a, their own way of pronouncing it, which is the right way, of course. Uh, watch him. He's really good to watch. Just track him and see how he does it. It's uh, He's very, very clever as well as really powerful. Let's move on to the flow of a race. And um, for many people out there, every race has a certain flow and most races follow a certain flow. And it's something as a pro you become used to. And when it doesn't follow that normal regime, it sort of pisses you off a little bit. You're like, what the hell? Like, you know, and I'm going to explain it now. Yeah, and we've been doing 50K it. an hour for two hours now. Why is the brake not already away? And we can sort of just ease off for a bit and chase them later. Exactly. So let's talk about that. So the race starts. A typical race when uh, I want to talk about the differences. Let's talk about the start. So a race typically starts. Someone wants to get in the breakaway, and there's I think there's three styles of races. There's a there's a day where it's going to be typically a, a bunch sprint. So the break rolls off the front. There's going to be a a day where it's going to be a chance for the breakaway. So then that's the stage Robbie was just talking about there where. It's going for two hours because everyone thinks if I don't get in this break, I'm never going to win the stage. And then there's the, th the third style, which sort of crosses over, I think, is a classic, uh, a one-day race where the break's probably never going to make it. Well, will never make it, but it's very much worthwhile being in the break for many teams, either for different kinds of reasons, to have a guy up there for later, 
or just for pure TV exposure, it's just a great race. So that is also a very tough start to the race. Hmm. Um, am I missing anything else, Robbie, from the start from the start there and the start of a stage? No, no, I think you got it. You know, those those flat days where it's destined to be a bunch sprint and you know the sprinters' teams are going to want to control everything and they will chase everything back. You often, you'll see less activity, less willingness for riders to go on the attack to try and get in the break because they know even if they get off the front, they get in a break, they might even get eight minutes. They're, they're making no illusions about staying away and winning the stage. They know they're doomed. I mean, it, it does happen once in a blue moon. The sprinters' teams will get it wrong. Something yeah. will happen and the break will survive. And there's guys that go, so you're telling me there's a chance. I mean, that famous line from Dumb and Dumber, it's a one in a million. But, you know, it, it hardly ever happens, but that's why there's you see riders less willing to go on the attack and try and get him one of those breaks on a flat stage. So often you see the smaller teams of the peloton, the wild card teams, getting a bit of TV exposure. Their director saying, let's get in the break, let's give it a go. Because they also realise that if they could sit in the bunch and go to the finish, they're still not going to go anywhere near winning the stage. They don't have the capability to win a bunch sprint and they're going to be totally anonymous all day their sponsors and their, you know, their team would rather see them off the front with their colours on TV and get talked about. Um, but like you said, that, that the, the second scenario where it's a realistic opportunity for a breakaway to survive, it's too hilly for the sprinters teams to consider keeping the field together or chasing things back because their sprinter might get dropped on the final climb and it's all been wasted. Uh, they're the sort of days and they can be so painful yeah. Because you, you could literally be sitting on the edge of the road in a nagging slight crosswind for hours on end thinking, it's the break ever going to get away that there's that little lull, that there's a, just a drop in the pace, the gap opens up, and finally we, we can stop and have a pee. And that's the next phase, isn't it? It's the, it's the pause. It's let them get time. And, you know, following, following this... We move into a control phase where whatever team takes control, if it's that day where the break has got a chance at the, at, at the victory, normally it's a good size break with good riders because it's been so hard. It's almost like a selection, a natural selection. On the other hand, when it's a sprint day and someone rolls off the front, you might get a little bit more time to cruise around and you know wait for that gap to get established. Typically on that breakaway stage, the gap is established very quickly and a team starts controlling and you find your position. Um, on, on a sprint day, Robbie, the break's gone, there's a team controlling. What would be typically for you, you know, like run me in sort of as the stage goes, a 200K stage, it took 3K for the break to go. The break is now, you've rolled around for another, let's say 40K, we're around the 50K mark, 150K to the finish. Run me through for you what your day was like from there, typically for the sprint. Well, firstly, you just you, you think about the situation. You see how many riders are up the road. Who's up the road? Are they any threat to taking over the yellow jersey? And sometimes, and this is a whole other thing, like I said, down another rabbit hole, is if the yellow jersey is being held by, um, say, back in the day, Chris Froome's team, Sky, Chris in yellow from, you know, has been a one hilltop or one time trial or whatever it is. They don't want to have it for the next six days across, across the flat roads of central France they'll be content to just go, break's gone, we're just going to let it go, we're not chasing it because we're happy to lose the jersey. 
and the weight falls on the teams of the sprinters, the weight's there anyway because they're, they're going to chase it anyhow. So for me, it's just see, okay, how many? Who? Not bothered. And just we decide within the team then we're going to use one or two guys. And generally, knowing how long the Tour de France is, three and a half weeks, you're into maybe day three or four. You've got a situation like this one. You want cooperation from the other teams. So you want them to believe in the chances of their sprinter, even though I'm sitting there thinking, yeah. you've got no chance. <laughs> you, you, everybody you want wants to each other to believe in their own chances, yeah. so their team will work. So you, then there sometimes will be a little bit of um, going around in the peloton and not by the sprinters themselves, but sort of that lead out man or you know, someone who's like road captain of each team sort of go around and talk to other teams who have sprinters. Hey, uh, later on, once it gets to about seven, eight minutes, uh, you guys put one on the front with us. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we'll put one on the front with you. And then, you know, there'll be a team that goes up and starts to ride on the front to stop the breakaway getting further away. And then the other teams won't turn up. <laughs> so then the discussion starts again. Go back. Hey, you said you were going to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're coming. We're coming. And they'll wait Because we'll take ten. our guys off, you know, like yeah. we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get all these Mexican standoffs and, um, but, you know, it, it always comes down to there's sort of always one or two guys that everybody knows. These are the two favourites. They know their favourites. Their team know their favourites. And those two teams will, you know, take the weight of the chase. They'll send two and, if necessary, later on three guys up to the front and then wind it all back in. And then the other team said, oh, no, we're not going to help because you two are the favourites come into that last 10k they're all over the front they're like like, yeah we got to be here because we can win they're suddenly big believers in themselves um it's a it's a game of bluff all day long nobody's bluffing anybody though like it's all bullshit um because nobody's falling for anything that anybody says um but you're just trying to make sure you know come on one of us is going to win everybody contribute and but there's always someone trying to you know make the others do that little bit more it's a fine line, like, because it's just such a small world and you might be on the team with that guy next year and he might have been on your team. It is a small world and essentially, like, I guess people are out there listening going, well, why would you work? You know, like, Robin McEwen's team, he's won three stages here. They're definitely going to win. He's the fastest sprinter. Why would we help you, right? There's that mentality and often I'm thinking that too. But I guess what goes around comes around and there is a little bit of that and you can get burnt down the line. And I guess a lot of DSs sometimes do that in my opinion too often they make deals you know we'll help them they helped us last race and things carry across even over races over years is that sort of what you've seen happen over the years yeah over the years and over decades and decades it's over for more than a century there's been um you know things that carry across one race to another and that includes grudges yeah and you see that play out in the races sometimes where a team will almost um give up their own chance of a stage win just so they can make someone else's life difficult who mm. pissed them off the week before. You, exactly. you often see that with directors. I mean, they got, because they've got um, a, a pretty low level of control over the race, they're not sitting on the bikes, they're not doing the pedalling, they, they can get pretty antsy in the car. Yeah. And when another team doesn't, doesn't do what they consider to be the right thing by them, 
they'll they'll you know, they'll just put it in the pocket and just remember it for you know whenever it's convenient when it comes up again uh, even if it's as as simple as um the okay team a we're trying to get people to work team b like nah we're not going to help and they sort of cause a bit of shit a week later team b could have a guy off the front he's he looks like he could win for no good reason, even without a sprinter in the team, team A would go, what they did to us last week, let's just ride on the front, pull him back in. we got no one who can finish it off, but let's yeah. just catch we got, him. We've got nothing I've to seen, do today. I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it happen. we got nothing to do. It's not going to cost us much energy, but it's going to make the director sportive feel better about what happened last week. And it's, it's payback's a bitch. And, you, and you're watching on TV, and I'm sure people are like, I, I can't quite understand this tactic, and maybe I'm not understanding cycling. And that's where it gets confusing, because it's even confusing for us if we don't know the intricate details hmm. of you could be in the race going, and why is um, that team chasing? Because uh, And it could even be Teams GC, this sort of crap too. So there's yeah. there's a many, many reasons. I want to talk about another... <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen teams chasing for punishment because they were told to get in the break and they missed the break. So then their team director, instead of saying, okay, you missed that one, you're really stuffed up. Tomorrow we're going again, we're gonna get in the break. No, he, instead of saving their energy for tomorrow, so they're likely to get in the break, no, you have to chase it all day long. So then they're absolutely ruined. They're all a mess and none of them get in the break for the whole rest of the race that goes on for another 10 days. Is it, there's, I've actually, you might've been in this scenario, maybe you were never, in such a scenario, but I was in a team once where we had nothing to do on the last day and another team was trying to defend the yellow jersey and they came and said, you guys, can you guys ride for us and you'll get some money? But the stipulation was, what I didn't understand was if we got it under a certain time gap. And I think the gap was at four minutes. If you guys get it under two minutes, we'll pay you this much. I didn't know this until the end, we were just riding. We didn't get it under two minutes. We got it to two minutes 15. They took over. They took it under. We never got paid. They got the race back. You know, like... Oh, you've, you've had the old double cross. It was it was the double cross and they didn't oh. care because we were just a small team and, you know... You, you've been had. Uh, I got some good training in. Let's just say you've that. Been That's had. what I got out of it. What, what I've seen once from a team who missed the break and their, their director sportive... He was ropeable that the team hadn't performed on the day, that played no part in the race. He, to, to fix them, made them ride to the hotel, which is about another 80k away. And it was, it was hot too. So needless to say, the next day, they were on they their were hands there. and knees at the start already, and they didn't get in the break the next day either. So he really fixed it. It was a stroke of genius. Tell me about a couple of things here. So... Some people might have seen Robbie was very good at doing this and sprinters doing it. It's called sandbagging or drifting. Oh, no, never sandbagging, Mitch. It's the drift. It's the drift. It's the well, drift. The drift, yes. The drift is, Robbie, explain it. All right. So the, the, the tactic, um, well, for me and for, for guys like me who were not great climbers, not very good climbers, some days terrible climbers, to save your legs and to, to keep yourself in the peloton, climb after climb, and I'm not talking, not climbs of 20K, but sort of these one to two kilometer hills, but they feel like climbs, trust me. The, the trick was to save your legs as much as possible, was to 
start the hill at the front of the peloton and then just ride a moderate tempo, drift your way backwards, just drifting through, riders passing you left and right. By the time you get to the top of that hill, ideally you're in the last 10 or five riders in the peloton. So you may have gone up the hill compared to the guy who started at the front and stayed at the front. I will have ridden up a hill um, 45 seconds slower than someone else. I may have spent longer climbing, but my heart rate and my power output were incredibly lower. Hence, I'd saved a heap of energy. It felt almost like I hadn't ridden that hill. And then you take the time, and and here's the trick to making it work, when you have a succession of hills, getting yourself back to the front without wasting a lot of energy. So it's not just about blasting up the side in the wind, making huge acceleration, get back to the front, but just following wheels, riding through gaps, just keep like a salmon upstream, just keep moving the, the path of least resistance, preferably in someone else's wheel, back to the front, next hill, start at the front, drift back again and as the race goes on you can afford to drift less and less but if you've done it from the beginning you've saved yourself a lot of energy over the course of a day and if you do over the course of a, a stage race then you you can save a lot of energy and um worked for me it's 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 a very hard thing to do because the hardest part of that is not the drift it's the back to the front without using energy yeah and i've found it works very well on a circuit race because you know the yeah. climb you know the hard points you know where it's going to ease up or bunch up where you can make that move later. Um, another thing that takes a lot of skill is riding crosswinds. And firstly, just explain to everyone out there who obviously knows what a crosswind is, has been out riding. Explain what happens in a race. And then I think, try and explain the three styles of riders I see. I In more current days, there's the Adam Blythe, a guy who knows how to position, very similar to you, never stick his nose in the wind, but suddenly is always in the front group. A guy like Luke Rowe, a guy who, in my opinion, either starts the crosswind or is just happy to just be involved with the turns because he's a strong, strong guy. Or there's a third style, a Luke Durbridge, who might miss the front group, but will just ride across to the front group because he's just a strong bastard and then just ride around the outside all the time. So explain to me the crosswinds and, and your take on it. Yeah, well, for, for people, the uninitiated to the crosswinds, I'm sure everybody's more or less heard of them. But, you know, if you're riding in a, a south to north direction and the wind is coming anywhere from the west or east, doesn't matter if it's north, northwest or east, southeast or south, southeast, it'll be a head crosswind, tail crosswind, whatever it is. It, it makes the, the slipstream to the rider in front of you not be directly behind them anymore, but to slightly to one side. So as riders take shelter across the road, trying to ride in that diagonal slipstream, eventually, well, the road's only, let's say it's 10 metres wide, you'll have 10 or 12 riders across it in a diagonal formation. Think of the geese flying when you see them, that V formation, Mm -hmm. like that. There's just not enough road. Then somebody's directly in the wheel, which means they're not protected from that crosswind. That can go on for a little bit along the edge of the road Sooner or later, those guys, they're in that straight single file. They're catching wind from the side. Someone's going to pop. The group's going to break. And that's where you see it fall into multiple groups down the road. I like to call that line the doom line. (laughs) The line of doom. 
Yeah, it's it's inevitable what's going to happen. You can and you can sit there thinking, "I'm okay, I'm okay," but inevitably you're gone. Yeah, anyway. you're not, and that's that's why it's 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 just you've got to get up to near the front of that line, and the the safest and in the end, although it looks hard, the easiest place is taking turns of pace on the front in that rotating group at the front, and they're the ones who are going to survive because they're sharing the work into the wind. But when they're not actually on the front, they're in full slipstream full protection and but it's such a hard battle to get there and there are some riders who as you said a guy like uh Ro, for instance he's a guy who is he's one he's strong and he sees it they you know they've done the team's done the research they've looked at the the weather patterns the wind predictions the direction of the road they know that at spot x at kilometer 85 we're going to turn right the wind is blowing from the north it's going to be hitting us in the in the left hand side pushing us across the right hand side of the road that's the place we can do some damage or that's the place do not get caught out and a guy like luke rose pretty much always riding at or near the front and is acutely aware of when it can happen and attack is the best defense mm. when it comes to crosswind don't sit and wait for somebody else to do it just start riding and that's luke rose through and through then there's others who are sort of they're 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 cunning and they're canny, but they've, if, you've, if you get yourself just slightly out of position, like you mentioned in Adam Blythe, or like I, I didn't always ride like at the front and be the aggressor trying to split things in a crosswind. I was reactionary. I, I'd yeah. see it and I'd see it happening, but I'd make one big acceleration, like a, a 90% sprint. Sometimes it had to be 100 to get, <laughs> to, get, to get into the spot and hope that I didn't blow up. Um, but you know, see it happening and suddenly go, it's now, and yep. be able to make that acceleration and slot yourself in there quickly. So you've just got to react quickly and be able to make that acceleration and slot in. And then you've got the other guys, like you mentioned Durbo. Um, there's a number of guys, those time trialist types, the classic style riders. They've got this sort of pretty high horsepower that they can sustain for long periods. And even if they get caught out and miss the first group, They'll be able to be the sort of the powerhouse in a second group. Stay stay within touch for long enough that things might start to just settle into a rhythm, and then they'll blast across the gap. Yeah. Time trial their way across a gap, and even on the road in a crosswind, a gap between two groups, you you might look at it and go, fifteen seconds. That's not much. Tell you what, if you try and ride across it, it's an incredible <laughs> distance to try and bridge on your own to crosswind as opposed to a working group. But you've got guys who can do that sort of effort. They can, you know, ride themselves back into contention. And I hated them. And and the, and most of the problem there is, and I've been in that situation, I'm sure you've seen it done or done it yourself. You see that gap, you think, you see the last few wheels in the doom line, the guys who are about to get dropped aren't protected. And you think, I'll just sprint across and get onto the back of the doom line. But you've put yourself straight back in the worst scenario ever. If you're going to get across... You've got to do exactly what you said. You've got to go to the front of that group and get involved, get in that line. And you've got to have friends. You've got to have friends between teams because that is one thing that can help you out a lot. It's that small call in as you're coming back to the edge of the road, someone needs to let you back in. You either force your way in or you have a mate that lets you in. Yeah, yeah. You've either got someone who says and they appreciate, they see the amount of work you're doing, they know you're a contributor. And they'll say, yep, and you're straight back in between. And otherwise, if, if you see yourself and you've, 
you've done your turn on the front, you're coming back, you've got into the slipstream of the guy who's just done his turn, you're sliding backwards along that diagonal line. You've also got to be really aware of how many riders are left and how much road is left to work mm. with and do not get yourself into that line of doom. And yeah. you've got to, you know, if you're not getting let in and guys are really, you know, pushing up the inside, you've eventually just got to push your way in. And, you know, if it, if it comes to the choice of, I'm either going to slide back into the line of doom and get dropped out of this group, race over, or I'm going to force my way in and possibly someone will be forced off the edge of the road. He'll puncture or not get back on the road quick enough and he'll get blown out the back. I know which one I'd choose. <laughs> well, let's talk about this. Is a and, perfect... and as professional riders, you'd all say yeah. the same. I mean, all you blokes would say the same. If it's me or it's him, it's him. It's him. Gone. Let's talk about the next thing because I think it leads into it perfectly. The unwritten rules, gentlemen's agreements, which probably don't exist anymore, but let's talk about what used to exist. The few things that people don't understand about the unwritten rules. Um, tell me what you know about those, Robbie, and what are some of them? Because I struggled to find. I thought there was going to be quite a lot, but there's only a few that I know of. There, there's a few basics, really. Um, one, one of the ones that I, I still see it being respected for the most part is the, the go slow in the peloton when there's been a really big crash. But there's a limit in terms of how close you are to the finish of when that still applies. It's a, it's a, a grey area and it would depend if it's a one-day race, if it's a stage race, if the yellow jersey involved is, you know. Um, but there's so many factors as a, as a guy who is riding in the front of the peloton, there's a big crash behind. You've got firstly no idea who's in it at first until, mm. you know, word filters through. But when there's a really big one, I, I, I do, i got to admit, I like seeing the bunch go, okay, we're just going to, take the gas off but if it's in the last 20k then all bets are off you race it that's yeah. racing after that that's a racing incident and too bad so sad because you, you're racing for the finish you don't that's not a time to sit up and then other ones you know don't don't attack during a a mass nature break you know when everyone's having a toilet stop um including our know, leaders jerseys favorites whatever it's not the time to to go while people are going. That's a, that's what's a non-attacking your, moment. What's your opinion now? Because you may have experienced it just before you retired, because I felt like it was drifting out then, but that doesn't hop, happen that often anymore. One, we don't really stop for nature breaks all that often. And two, when we do, it's almost a free-for-all now, unless it's a mass stop. Um, because there is a lot of pressure now coming from DSs um, or teams just saying, if you need to be in that break and I don't care if the road's blocked, go on the side of the road. And what I mean by the road's blocked, it means when a team is completely or the whole riders are blocking the front of the race to let the break go, there's no way to get past the peloton. People will go on the side, on the dirt, whatever, to get past. Um, and even when people decide to go, you know what, let's just call a, a, a toilet break because that means the breakaway is going to go. People say, well, no, it's not over for me. I'm going to keep attacking. Mm. What's and your opinion what, that, on that? Well, that's why it's a funny situation. So if the break's like gone a minute and a half, two minutes up the road, and then guys go, right, nature break, I'm like, yep, fair, that's fair enough, sort of 
the brake's gone. If you're not in it, you missed it. But if mm. the brake's 30, 40 seconds up the road and a team's been told under no circumstances are we to miss the brake, and then there's a teammate of someone in the brake trying to go, yeah, did nature break, nature break, let's all stop yeah. for a pisso. Like, and, and, but somebody's been told to attack. No, it, I'm happy for them to be keep attacking. They've got to get themselves in the break because it ain't over yet. 30, 40 seconds. No, that's, that's not an established break yet. That's still race on. So if someone is, you know, attacking or counter-attacking, trying to get there, good on them, best of luck. And I just, like you say, there's the sneaky, oh, I'm just going to call a nature break just to try and shut things down. And it, mm. you know, it, it happens, but you know, if other guys are going to keep keep the momentum, keep the the aggression up, then I, I think good on them. And you know, there's there's always someone who's going to yell at them, tell them they're doing the wrong thing, but they're just it's a, just another tactic of trying to shut things down for their teammate who is actually in the break. I'm definitely one of those guys trying to get it going when it's been one of those starts we talked about at the start, a two hour long start and I'm that guy at the back going doesn't anyone need a piss because I certainly want that break to uh, to get away <laughs> speaking of speaking of breakaways firstly have you have, how many breakaways have you been in have you been in a breakaway one two three four I've been, I've, <laughs> I've been in a few I've been in a few yeah. um but it, you know normally it wasn't my thing here's the thing for a, a, a sprinter someone who can win bunch sprints you get yourself mm. in a break. You, if Mitch, if you get yourself in a break with Caleb Ewan, am I taking him to the line? What's the first thing you're going to think to yourself? How am I getting rid of him? Exactly. There is almost no point whatsoever for a a pure sprinter to get in a break because the very first thought that anybody out there with him has is got to get rid of him. How do we roll him? All right, well then, what's the breakaway etiquette then? Because, you know, people see on TV and you might be thinking to yourself, you know, do these guys just all suddenly become teammates out here? Why are they all working together? Why wouldn't you just sit on the back and just get a free ride to the finish and then, you know, why why are we all working together what's the etiquette there and it's it is a bit of an unspoken rule that everyone pulls even turns even though it doesn't always happen what happens in a break yeah mostly everybody that makes their contribution and you you know it's the the common interest thing you get out in the break you need to work together like your one team to build up an advantage over the peloton to at least have a chance of someone from the group winning the stage then there's always a certain point at which that teamwork together in the break falls apart and riders start thinking of their own interests, how they're going to win the stage. They've been weighing up every rider out there, like he's a better climber than me, he's a better sprinter mm. than me, there's a section coming up, I need to attack, I need to be alone, or I can, I can get away with um, that guy, that guy, that guy, but not those two, because one will drop me on the final hill, the other one will beat me in the sprint, so you're weighing up all this stuff. So as the race goes on you get to certain points in the course someone's trying to save their legs a little bit more someone's planning an attack someone else doesn't want to take you know a fast guy to the finish and it all starts to fall apart and it's every man for himself and and all those tactics start to play out but as that happens the average speed of the group drops while in the peloton their average speed is going up 
as you've got contributors to the chase, fresh riders coming to the front, and that's their only job of the day, catch the brake. And that's why we see it so often come back together, that the brakes get caught. So, well, geez, they're a chance. They had five, they, there were only four chasing. Why couldn't the five hold off the four? But it's motivation to work together. And the ones chasing the front of the peloton, they're emptying the tank, they're giving everything they got. And their finish line is catching the brake, where the, the brake is, their finish line is the actual finish line finish and line. trying to get rid of the others and, and work it to their advantage, which is never good for your average speed. So that's that's the beauty of it. Well, what, what it might be also confusing when we see a team chasing and they've got one in the breakaway and you're thinking, well, hang on here, what's going on here? They're, are they chasing their own teammate down? Yet, what does that allow the guy in the breakaway to do? He becomes really not liked up there. Yeah, and sometimes that's the, the, the uh, the tactic that gets pulled by some teams, it's a false chase. So you'll have a team go to the front, but they've got a rider in the break. So the rider in the break will say, uh, guys, I'm not working on the front anymore. I'm not contributing. I'm going to sit on the back because my team's chasing. And they'll say, well, what are they chasing for? Oh, we're riding for our sprinter. 99.9 times out of 100, they're not riding for their sprinter. They probably don't have one but they're trying to then give a, a whole false sense of what's happening and give their rider up the front an opportunity to say, well, my team's chasing and I've been told not to work anymore. And with that, get a bit of rest on the back. And it's, a, it's one of those moves, Mitchell, we talked about before, where things don't get forgotten and that it'll come back to you. And fight you in the might, might not be the very next week, but eventually, I've got a quick, last couple of quick questions to ask you here. Um, feed zones, no attacking in the feed zone. Run yep. me through a quick feed zone. It's pretty hectic there. What happens in the feed zone? Just quickly, generally. Well, come into the feed zone, you've got all the, the team assistants, the soigneurs as we call them, the people who work with the team to look after the riders. They're standing in this feed zone. It's maybe a kilometre long, and this is where you can take on food, drink, generally in a, in a bag, they call a musette, a feed bag, two bottles, um, you know, a couple of gels, a bar or two, some little snacks that have been prepared, that sort of stuff. You go through there and as a team, you've got to separate yourselves from each other a little bit because you might have generally two team helpers in that feed zone. So four will get it from one guy, three will get it from the other, or if in the in a race with eight, four and four, try and divide it. Sometimes a guy will pick up two or three bags at once and then distribute mm. them to his teammates so they can stay out of that um, sort of washing machine of activity on that side of the road, all trying to grab the bags. Certainly a time that the, the pace goes off. Attacking is uh, as, as close as you'll get to forbidden. Yeah. Um, wouldn't surprise with the, team with, attacking the, with, the th through there. with the things that have happened lately, you know, Mitch, with the, the no more super tuck and the no more aero position, um, draping your hands over the front of the bars, but not actually holding them. Um, attacking in the feed zone may eventually come into that category as well, that they'll, you know, they're coming up with so much stuff. Um, I'm sort of glad they forgot measuring sock length at the moment, because that just was a complete farce. But yeah. I can tell you just on feed zones, Often in, in the Grand Tours now, we are, or well, a lot of teams are not using the feed zone. So what they do is they open it up. Previous to now, it was illegal to feed zone outside the zone. That's why they really kept it in there. Mm. 
But now they've opened it up. I don't know if it's in every race, but a lot of races they're opening it up. So, you know, for instance, we'll go, we're not happy with that feed zone. So we'll do our feed 10K before, 10K after yeah. on top of that climb or it's, blah, blah, blah. So the feed zones aren't as what they were. Yeah, well, it's certainly safer to spread it out. I mean, it is kind of an antiquated thing. And, and um, logistically, it was it was easy. But on the downside of having those easy logistics of one feed zone, it did attract when you could still have crowds, of course, it attracted crowds and people just go and stand in the feed zone hoping for a souvenir. And that was carnage or at the, you know, at the far end of it when it was finished and riders throwing the unneeded things away. But um, I like the idea of, you know, choose a spot. If your team's prepared to go there and stand in the middle of nowhere and, you know, the, the very best place is on an uphill, low speed, you know, big margin for error as opposed to where you sometimes see feed zones on a flat stretch of road where, you know, even going slow, you're still going 40. Yeah. Something goes wrong in the feed zone at 40. It still hurts. I do want to also ask you, this is, this is really it, Robbie. What has it been like, you know, this transition, you retired at the end of 2012, was it? Um, for me, it doesn't even really feel that long ago, but actually it has been a, a fair chunk of time. And talking to you right now, it, it really doesn't feel like you've been out of the peloton for very long. How has that transition been? And you've been doing a lot of commentary over the last few years. Looking at the peloton now and us talking about these intricate things, do you feel like you're, the, the world of cycling is really changing? And do you like how it's going or do you miss those old times? And is it difficult to commentate on that? Well, I still enjoy watching the races. I still really enjoy watching races. I love commentating on them. It gives you even more of a, as an ex-rider, it gives me more of a connection to the sport I've been in so long, being able to talk about it. And I, I like to share my enthusiasm for the sport with people and explain things that, you know, you can sometimes, as a, as a person who's been in the sport for a long, long time, you can take things for granted about how things happen, why they happen, what's going to happen next. Um, I enjoy thinking about it from the other side, from the spectator's point of view, and trying to guide people and get them to understand the intricacies of the sport uh, and hopefully become as passionate about it as I am and and love it as much, love the way it plays out, because I, I love the tactical battles. I love those little different elements of races that make a big difference that almost go unseen to nearly everyone. Um, that's what, what, I, what I do love. And the sport in itself hasn't really changed. I mean, the way races are ridden, you've got a team leader, he's a guy everyone expects to be able to win. Um, I think the, the top has become a bit more broad. Um, there's a lot of potential winners. But that, as always, there's, there's always a couple that really stick out. You can pick one or two super favourites in every race and at least half the time you'll be right. Yeah. And that's, I think that's right, exactly what you said. That's what makes it so exciting for me to watch sprints, as we pointed out. And I hope we've been able to make that really more aware for a lot of people that sometimes the most exciting sprint is watching what a guy like Mikel Merku did to put Sam Bennett in that position to be able to win the race. And that for me is more exciting than watching the actual final 200 meter sprint. It's the journey of getting there. And that's what I'm trying to, with your help, unravel and hopefully let people understand the little intricacies that make the racing that much more exciting. So yeah. 
Mate, thank you very much for being on the pod today. And, no worries. Uh, it's great to uh, share some life in the Peloton. I look forward to hearing your voice on the coverage. Love hearing it. Good on you, Mitch. Good to talk to you, mate. See you, mate. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that broke down some of those little things that we do in racing for you a little bit more, gives you a little bit more insight to what is happening out on the road. You might actually know all that stuff, but I still found it interesting anyway, listening back onto the episode myself. Lionel, what did you think, mate? Did you learn anything or did you actually know all that stuff we are talking about today? Well, I've got an understanding, I guess, from years of covering the sport, but you can never be getting it from the horse's mouth, can you? Robbie McEwen talking through how sprint finishes work and making that distinction between the teams that have a train going and then the freelance sprinters. A great comparison you made between Caleb Ewan, who is almost the Robbie McEwen of today's peloton in, in, in size, similar sized riders, and I think similar style of of sprinters and just to hear him talk about how the peloton operates i mean you you really can't you know buy that kind of uh, insight and uh, knowledge so and, and i had a real connection with this because it took me back to 1999 when i was still a young reporter working for a cycling magazine and one of my assignments was to go to Belgium and where Robbie lived at the time near Hedersbergen in Belgium and interview him for the magazine shortly after he'd won his first Tour de France stage on the Champs-Élysées in that 1999 Tour de France so just hearing him talk through the sprints was one thing but then the other thing that I thought all oh, amateur cyclists could also take something from especially if you're riding in a group if you're not the strongest climber in the group and you're out and you always take a bit of a kicking on the climbs, if you've got whatever, a four or 500 meter climb, just go into the bottom of the climb at the front and drift back through the group. And you might not be too far off the back by the time you reach the top of the hill. And just hearing Robbie McEwen, one of the best riders in the world on his day, obviously a sprinter, so the mountains are not necessarily his friend, but just talking about using his mind, using his brain to get through the races and conserve energy for um, the days when he can get across the line first. Absolutely fascinating stuff. I can tell you firsthand, it was amazing, and I alluded to it in the very start of the podcast, when I got a chance to ride with him in the Bay Criterium Classics back when I was a youngster, I just saw him weave his way through the peloton, and I remember just being in awe of that, how he could... I was so happy if I could move up a wheel here, a wheel there. It was technical, it was hard... He, it looked like he was in a different race. He just sat at the back. When it was time to move to the front, he simply just made the decision and moved to the front. And that's why I love talking about that stage win that he had there in Canterbury, because that's what would have happened. We never saw footage of that. But the fact that he got on, and like I say that, I, I can tell you from experience, if you're not in the front of the bunch at 5K to go, it really is over. The fact that he only got on the back of the bunch at 5K to go, and was there at the front and won that stage. It's just such a phenomenal feat in itself. And that's why I love talking to him about that. And I love picking that stage out and picking his brain about that too. It's just, uh, he really can break it down well. And it was it was a fun time talking to Robbie. I can tell you, we had a, a lot of fun before the, the camera was, oh, not the camera, sorry, the microphone was on, laughing there in the green room. It was, it was good fun catching up with him. I really also enjoyed the, 
little insights he gave into the sorts of deals that go on on the road, the negotiations between riders and teams, you know, cooperating, who's going to chase the break, everyone trying to get out of the work that they've agreed to do to help out a team uh, chase down a break, maybe. All of that stuff's just not something that you can pick up through the TV screen um, unless you really know what you're looking for. And so to hear a rider explain how some of those conversations go on, let's not forget while you guys are still moving at like 45 50k an hour um that was really interesting as well as well as his little interpretation of the unwritten rules you know the do's and don'ts don't uh well don't attack through the feed zone um and and just that negotiation that goes on at the phase of the race when the break is trying to go away you know some people it will be in their interest as you were saying mitch they want the break to go and and make the shout right everyone stop for a pee now and that will let the break go um, but there'll be some people who don't want that to happen at that moment. And they're the sorts of things that, you know, you, you need that sort of laser eye uh, vision when you're watching a bike race to pick up. So to hear somebody explain how it happened, um, I think it's really fascinating. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did recording it and re-listening to it. I've got an exciting guy in the pipeworks, Tom Pitcock. I've been in contact with him. We haven't found a time to sit down and record yet, but I can tell you that is in the next couple of episodes. Hopefully, it can be there for two weeks' time. If not, it'll be there in a month's time. But until then, head over and listen to Talking Luft. And guys, thanks a lot for listening. Send in your feedback. I love hearing from you. Guys, until next time, thanks a lot. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.